Welcome to Speaking Out. We're mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. To talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. Those With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming on ABC Radio. What that told me back then was that Australian audiences were ready for these kinds of contemporary stories with us as First Nations women living in urban centres with connections to community, but all the experiences that women have generally in shopping and sex and and so forth relationships, um, having us as protagonists and that we can write about all those things, shopping and so forth, but also include social justice at the same time, write about black deaths in custody, write about the NT intervention, write about um, Indigenous intellectual property. The past and future of First Nations writing in Australia. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. NAIDOC Week is a time to celebrate my First Nations culture and this year during that time I got the chance to host the book show, bringing together my love of reading and love of my culture. So I had two of my favourite writers on the show and in the spirit of the theme for our elders, I got to dive into the archives and pay tribute to some First Nations literary trailblazers. I love loved it so much, I wanted to share it with you. So here I am sitting down with the amazing Anita Heiss. So Anita, you were the first person I ever met who was determined to become a writer. Where did that ambition come from? And do you remember what you wanted to achieve as a writer when you were first starting out? Okay. Well, the the thing is, I was at was at university when I first was inspired or even thought about writing something, writing a book. And it was because In my undergrad, nearly everything I read about anything to do with Aboriginal Australia was written by a non-Indigenous person, and some of those people had never even been to Australia. And so I realised very quickly that the skills that I had gained in my honours degree at university meant that I had a responsibility as someone with a tertiary education to use those skills in some way. But it wasn't really until I started my PhD that I fell in love with reading First Nations storytelling that I thought about writing more. And even then it was because I wanted to learn more about the publishing industry for my PhD. And I think the original book was about saying uh, we this is how we look when you write about us. So Sacred Cows was really about saying this is how white Australian uh, society looks through my lens as a, you know, we're a Jew woman living in the city and so forth. And I think I really just wanted to make that statement in the first place that um, that everything that was being written about us was written through a colonial lens and was written through a lens of people imagining what our aspirations were as Aboriginal people and particularly as, as women. So that was the first um, motivation and then it just grew into wanting to write us right across the Australian literary landscape and into the national narrative. See, I love that about you. All of us grew up with that same frustration, not seeing ourselves on our bookshelves, not seeing ourselves on the screen, but you actually found this way to go ahead and start to really change that landscape in a way that the rest of us didn't even think about or contemplate. But that book, Sacred Cows, is a satirical look from your perspective of what it means to be a First Nations woman in Australia. Can you remember what it was like when you when it was first published, do you still have a memory of that feeling when your first book came out? 
Oh, absolutely. Because, Larissa, I don't know about you, but I never imagined that I would ever write another book. I just wanted to write this book um, and I wanted to make this statement. And we had this huge party at Bamali, which used to be in Abercrombie Street in Chippendale. And, you know, and everybody was giving me Frisian cow items like coffee mugs and dinner sets (laughs) and I had like salt and pepper shakers. I had anything you could buy in a cow, a black and white cow print I had. And it was a big deal because back in the day, as you would know, like that was 1996. And I remember that also that year was the first year I think I went, maybe it was next to the Brisbane Writers' Festival, and there were like four blackfellas on the program. So it wasn't something that we were all used to doing, going to writers' festivals and launching books and having books. So it was, back then, it was it was a really big deal for me and for my family, and it was a big celebration. It's so true, actually. It's easy to forget how extraordinary that was for that time, and it wasn't really mm. that long ago, um, because we have such a kind of renaissance of Indigenous writing now. Mm. You've done so many books since then. Does it still still feel magical each time one comes out or are you just kind of now you're a little bit more used to it? Oh, no. It's always a very special moment and I do not say this lightly. It is always a moment to celebrate with something special for myself, usually a piece of jewellery or absolutely a meal with friends or family or a Zoom shamming with my agent and publisher who are my very close friends because I also believe that in life milestones should be marked and they should be celebrated. And I was criticised once on Facebook because I remember referring to one of my books as, you know, my baby and you know, I've given birth to my baby and so forth. And I got hammered by a couple of people who had children and said, you cannot compare, you know, giving birth to a child to, get, you know, having a book. And I think you, you might understand this, that for us, um, birthing a book is still quite a, a significant thing in our lives. We create them, they gestate and they de- develop over a period of time and, and the delivery date, that can be painful as well. Um, but then there's this beautiful gift at the end uh, without stretch marks, but <laughs> with lots of cravings. And I don't want any of your listeners to ring in and complain about this because the thing, this analogy, because the reality is we also, you know, can laugh as First Nations peoples, but it's always, you know, we do the, the, the ceremonial opening of the box and I won't lie, I expect flowers from the publisher on the day when the, when the, book, <laughs> the book arrives and they know that. And um, because you, you, you know this as an author and you know this as a filmmaker that when it's finally in the public domain... There's a sense of relief, there's a sense of joy, there's a sense of anxiety because you have no control over how someone will read your work or view your your movie or doco and so forth. But um, absolutely, it's very, very special. I don't know if you remember this, but you actually gave me that advice when my very first novel came out. You said that I should buy myself something special as a way of remembering um, the, um, I guess, the celebration of having achieved this miraculous oh. thing. And I actually have done that. And and partly because of what you've just said, that we are a culture that values ceremony. And it was it, it has become a way of just acknowledging to myself that I've made a huge commitment and done something that's pretty brave. As you say, you don't know how an audience is going to react to something creative that you've made, whether it's a book or a film. Um, And so actually you did give me that advice all those years ago. You probably can't even remember, but it was something that has actually come to be quite meaningful for me. Oh, um, that makes me happy because I think you the word you used there was about, was commitment. And I think what a lot of 
a lot of people don't understand when they think about creatives and they think about writers, they don't understand the the absolute commitment that we make and that there's, you know, a week in March, I was up at 3am every morning to get a book in on time so I could actually have two weeks off because as a full-time writer, you, unless I give myself a holiday, I don't get a holiday as it were. And I think, you know, I, this weekend I'm working on, on proof pages for a book that needs to go to print next Tuesday. So that commitment um, is something that we have to absolutely um, give to ourselves and make sure that we live by. So I think at the end of that, you do deserve a gift. <laughs> I'm just actually going to pick up on something you've said, which is also your discipline about writing. And I have to say, it's one thing that I've always been very in awe of in terms of your creative practice. You're very disciplined about it and you seem to have a real structure. And for somebody like me who meanders and takes 10 years to write a novel, I'm always in awe of it. I wonder if you could share with us a little bit about where you write and what is your writing practice? You're absolutely correct about discipline because we have to be disciplined and self-motivated because nobody is there. We don't have a boss there. We have a publisher or an editor, but if you don't have a contract, you know, we can take our time. Um, I write mostly, I think it would be fair to say, I write mostly in libraries. I can edit almost anywhere on a plane or in bed, you know, uh, in a cafe, but I need to write in absolute silence. So I usually go to a library. I love the State Library of Brisbane and I sit in the John Oxley and I overlook Maywa and it's the perfect place to punch out 3,000 words if I can in a day. Um, I have also have a favourite place on the Gold Coast where I go and I get up before sunrise to write. In terms of my practice, I've sort of nailed... Um, a strategy in the last, I don't know, decade. It took me a long time to get to this place. I wished I had this strategy prior. So I always start with a synopsis now um, because if I I know exactly what the story is going to be, I know where it's going to start. I know where I think it's going to end. It may change over time, but I, you know, maybe I have three to a thousand words of of a synopsis. I know who the characters are. I know where the plot points are. And from that, I will do character breakdowns. So I know exactly what characters look like, what they eat, if there are any idiosyncrasies, their backstories. So that when I sit down to write, I know that Larissa's going to wear black patent heels. I know that I'm never going to have her in, um, you know, a white spotted frock because I know that she's not going to wear that because I've already done what her backstory and character is looks like and dresses like and their personality. I... I'm, I'm a plotter. There's two types of writers. There's a plotter and there's a panster. And a plotter maps out the story. It's like an essay plan for the entire novel. So my essay plan for my next novel is about 5,000 words long. Chapter by chapter, I've, I've mapped out the storyline and who, which point of view in which chapter, you know, all the dates, what the weather's like, those sort of things. And so I, I plot it out uh, while I'm researching and I don't start writing Generally, I don't start writing till the research is done and the novel is mapped out. Then I sit down and a lot of pantsers will say that it's not it's not organic being a plotter, that they like to be creative. It's absolutely organic and creative. It also just means that I have a novel out every year or every other year and not 
you know, five years because I because I have a structure to work to. I have no idea how to work as a panster. So I write, I do my writing. I will then see the gaps and what's missing and I will might do a bit more research and put out the chapters that are relevant for feedback, whether it's, a, you know, elders down on country or whether it's a professional in a field that I'm uh, about a character I'm writing in and then I'll incorporate all that. And before the, the publisher gets it, I will have done a number of drafts except for the next book when I already told the editor that they will be getting something which gives new meaning to the phrase first draft. <laughs> well, I just find that so fascinating. And the other thing I just have to say is um, I am wearing black Peyton heels. Of course you are. I did I mention you, it. The, I know I did mention at the beginning we'd been friends for a long time. But just to, to prove how well we know each other. That's right. Um, I do want to actually just talk also about um, the, some of the areas that you've written into. And mm-hmm. of course, I think I often reflect on this when I'm talking at writers' festivals about my own writing practice, that um, you've been an inspiration to me because you are a First Nations writer who went in and pioneered First Nations writing in a range of genres. And it gave, I think, writers coming through behind you more confidence about um, how broad and how limitless, really, First Nations mm. writing can be. And, of mm. course, one of the areas where you were a pioneer was in First Nations women's commercial fiction, books like Not Meeting Mr. Right, Avoiding Mr. Right, Manhattan Dreaming, Paris Dreaming. What did you love about that genre and what has been the audience response? Oh, well, first of all, as you would know, the research is what I love the most. It's so much fun because I've, you know, obviously went to Paris, I went to Manhattan, um, I went to Daniloquin and spent time there, went to Bathurst. I get to hang out in all these places and go to cafes and meet locals and experience on the ground what it's like to live there so I can write about it. I mean, I, I would very rarely ever, I don't even know that I have ever written about or created a setting in a place I haven't been to because I think you need to go to a place and use all your senses, smell the coffee in the street and the pizza and, and everything in Manhattan and so forth. So really what I love is the research. Um, but also, um, oh, I need to say also, I've got an, uh, a book coming out in July, an Audible original, and it's called Red Dust Running. And my friends, my running buddies who became my research assistants, we went to the Warwick Rodeo to research that and we had loads of fun. So that's the fun part of it. But what um, I think what I found back in 2007 with the original version of Not Meeting Mr. Right that sold so well that in the first six weeks a publisher asked for the next book, which was Avoiding Mr. Right. What that told me back then was that Australian audiences were ready for these kinds of contemporary stories with us as First Nations women living in urban centres with connections to community, um, but all the experiences that women have generally in shopping and sex and and so forth relationships, um, having us as protagonists and that we can write about all those things, shopping and so forth, but also include social justice at the same time, write about black deaths in custody, write about the NT intervention, write about um, Indigenous intellectual property, and that we should do that. And I will say, Larissa, the one thing that I've been surprised by and the one thing I hope we can talk about a little bit is publishing, and that is that, you know, I, I created this space in, in the genre and no one seems to have walked through the door. And so that diversity in the rom-com space, in the chick-lit space, in terms of um, First Nations women, that that's still waiting for people, to, other writers to come up and do that. And, you know, I'm 
older now. I'm too old to be writing chick lit. That's for 30-year-olds to write. Of course, the other area that you have been prolific in, I think, and groundbreaking is, of course, in writing for children. And you've recently written your latest book, Beady Garling. Did I say that right? Because I think that's the first Beady one. Beady Garling. Yeah, that's Beady close. Beady Garling, yeah. <laughs> um, it's an adaptation of Billy Yarradangalangdere, which I do like saying now that I've got stars <laughs> just for saying it. It rolls off the tongue. Yeah, it just rolls off the tongue, <laughs> yeah. um, uh, which is for young readers. And um, it's your, it is your fifth children's book. Why has it been important, so important for you to reach this audience? Okay, well, it's my first picture book, and I think I have six kids' novels too with the students of La Perouse Public School. And Betty Gulling, as you mentioned, is the kids' version of um, The Great Flood of Gundagai. And I, I want our kids, I want First Nations kids to see themselves on the page in the books that we expect them to read. I want them to see their realities. I want them to see their life experiences. I want them to see different skin tones. I want them to see sameness. And I I want all Australian kids to have diversity in their reading. I want, because um, to me, I think it's just really simple. And I think as writers, I know it for me as a writer, I feel I have a responsibility to do that, to provide the resources that encourage our kids to read. And I'll tell you, Larissa, it's so joyful Writing kids' fiction, I have Koori Princess as well, and it's so so joyful last year before the book even came out to see all these young, beautiful young kids dressing up as you know Koori Princesses, all different shades for Book Week. Um, and so, for me, it's a joyful place to write in. I have to say, I saw some of the pictures from that that week, and. I was so jealous because when I was growing up, there was nothing like this. I would have loved to have been a little princess dressed up like that, but it goes to show how many gaps in the literature that you've gone back to to fill in. Um, You do now have your own imprint at Simon & Schuster, and we did say we'd talk a bit about publishing. Um, What does this entail and why was it so important for you to do this? When you're so busy writing for yourself, um, what's the motivation and what's the aim? Uh, well, Bungie is the imprint. Bungie, it's um, designed to showcase both established and emerging First Nations authors. Uh, as a publisher, my focus will be on acquiring two commercial novels, so hopefully some rom-coms or some other genre fiction, and two non-fiction titles per year with the aim of elevating our voices and stories within those areas of the Australian publishing landscape. Uh, having been in the industry as an author and advisor since oh, back in such a long time ago, 1996, I am like super excited about this role. I love my title publisher at large um, because I, I absolutely, I know that the only way that we will see First Nations peoples truly sovereign in this space is to have us as publishers of our own stories. And I'm really thankful that the team at Simon & Schuster, and it is an international, it's a multinational, and all this had to go through uh, the US to be approved, um, that they understand that the responsibility for change in the publishing sector lies with the current mainstream publishers acting as mentors and eventually moving over to allow us to learn and to do what Australian publishing has needed for a very long time. And that's for us to have control over the way we are represented on the page and in the national narrative. Um, So I'm proud to say that I'm still in the process of acquiring my four books for the, the first year. But And those authors will have First Nations editors, we will have First Nations graphic designers for the layout and design, and First Nations artists do the cover art. 
and I'm really pleased about that. It's so amazing too. I mean, you mentioned earlier that you'd started to do your PhD because you were sort of interested to understand the publishing world and look where you are now. Mm, I know. Who I, I, I never had this as a dream as a child. You know, Larissa, I wanted, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a nun because I thought if I lived in a convent, I'd have my own bedroom. And then I wanted to be Ginger <laughs> from Gilligan's Island, but I was more like Marianne with, yeah. you know, Tomboy. And then I wanted to be an air, air hostess because I thought it was glamorous. And I go into schools, I go, there's nothing glamorous about flying. I'm glamorous <laughs> and you have to take that to the airport, children, because it's not there when you get there. <laughs> now, I'm having got the number of children's books wrong because you're so prolific, I can't keep count. Um, I was going to guess that you've written 23 books. But yeah, I think that's right. I oh, okay, good. About that. I think something like <laughs> something that. Something like that, yeah. uh, give or take. Um, what's next for you? I am working on a histor- an historical novel called Dide Awada, which means to rise up, and it's about the... Um, about Winterdine and the Battle of Bathurst. But I will be honest with you, and, I, and uh, you know, I I'm really, really, really need some time out from the deadlines and from the proof pages and from all of that. Um, but I'm, this book is really, really important to me and I'm looking forward to going to Bathurst in August and work, working with kids in primary schools to start with, but also catching up with Mob to talk, just to, you know, check in with people on the ground where the story is set, elders and so forth, and um, that's the big project for now. Oh, Anita, thank you so much for spending some time with us on the book show. It's always such a privilege to talk to you and I feel really inspired and I've really got to get my um, writing process together after hearing how how well, um, And I am a publisher now, Larissa, and... Uh, <laughs> Uh, we have had a conversation. We might keep having those conversations. I think Larissa Berent would write an awesome rom-com <laughs> um, set somewhere wonderful in the world. I don't know, maybe Portugal and, uh, yeah. Because, uh, you know, I've just come back from Lisbon. That's correct. <laughs> well, I look forward to our next dinner then and we'll see what we hatch up. Thank, <laughs> thank you so much, Anita. Thank you. You're listening to Speaking Out. It just comes down to showing, sharing you know, respecting the world from an Indigenous perspective on ABC Radio. This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia, on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt and if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app and that way other people can find us and hear our stories as well. On Speaking Out this week, a tribute to First Nations writing as we revisit the NAIDOC edition of the book show. But first, here's some music from Stuart Gaykamungu. Yeah. 
That was Stuart Gaikamangu with Lorpu. Stuart was born into a musical family, including most of the golf country's legends from Arnhem Land. His father was the keyboard player for legendary top-end band Soft Sand. This is Speaking Out. That's the key to it all, keeping connected to country. On ABC Radio. I'm speaking out this week, a tribute to First Nations writing as we revisit a special NAIDOC edition of the book show, which I was privileged to host. I've always been a reader. I love the classics like Jane Austen, the Brontes, Charles Dickens, Carol Shields, Margaret Atwood. But it's been so important for my development as a writer to read the work of Australian First Nations authors. They weren't as available to me when I was growing up because they just weren't on the bookshelves. But I think it means that I appreciate the renaissance of Indigenous writing that we have now all the more. The theme for this year's NAIDOC Week is for our elders. So I wanted to introduce you to some of the First Nations writers who've forged a path for me to follow. And let's start with Tony Birch. His training as a storyteller began around the kitchen table. I didn't come from a literary house at all, and I, I've spoken about this before. Why I lived in a house, there were no books in our house, and you know, it's not that books were banned, it's that my, my parents simply couldn't afford the luxury of buying a book. It just would have been... Um, a real indulgence. So we didn't read at home except for comics. We were mad readers of comics when we were kids. But everyone, I think, had a story to tell. Tony Birch's first book, Shadow Boxing, came out in 2006. It's a novel of interlinked stories set in 1960s inner-city Melbourne. He is now the author of 10 books of short stories, novels and poetry... And his work means even more to me as I've been working on the screen adaptation of his novel, Blood. I remember that when I was first reading the novel, long before I'd ever become a filmmaker, I was struck by how cinematic his writing is. So now that I'm thinking about my first feature film, the choice of a Tony Birch novel seemed to be the obvious source material. Living in Fitzroy in the 60s, it was a, a fairly, you know, in some ways a very tough place, but quite impoverished place for both Aboriginal people, non-Aboriginal people, um, certainly um, for migrants. And stories were told in a way to help you deal with the street, survive the street and negotiate the street. So those stories had a, a very strong moral element and code to them and even though you hear the same stories over and over again, as I still do now as an adult, you know, my children get sick of me telling stories that they've heard many <laughs> times before. They are reinforced because in a way that they solidify who you are and they solidify, I suppose, your moral compass. I think what they did is they allowed you to understand what transgression meant and they certainly allowed you to understand people who did not adhere sorry, to that moral code. Tony Birch's latest book is a collection of short stories called Dark as Last Night. In 2017, Yunkin Jajara poet Ali Cobby Eckerman received the Yale University Wyndham Campbell Prize, which is one of the world's richest literary prizes worth 215,000 Australian dollars. 
Ali is the author of poetry, memoir and three verse novels, including her latest, She is the Earth. She's been a generous mentor to a generation of writers like myself, a real auntie to us all. She's one of the most down-to-earth and wise people I know and is endlessly generous with her encouragement of other authors. And as for her work, I love how I can see my experiences or those of my family in her writing. Ali is part of the Stolen Generations and she's written about this family history in her poetry. My career is not a solo career. Um, My family is quite embedded in my writings um, by their request to um, to highlight some stories and, and episodes of um, how Aboriginal people have been treated and are currently treated in Australia. So my grandmother, she walked out of the Maralinga atomic bomb tests um, uh, with her small children. Um, my mother was removed from her. Um, I was tricked away from my mum as a baby and um, and then when I was um, a teenager, I wasn't encouraged to keep my son. And there was a four-year period from um, meeting my mum. I found my mum at 34 and in that four years um, I really grew as a woman um, with lots of um, ceremonies spent um, with the APY women out in the desert, um, which really strengthened me to then take on the role from relinquished child to relinquishing mother. Very poignant, Mm. um, blessed and, oh, I don't know, extremely difficult sometimes. Four years um, has proved to be a big blessing. And here is Ali Cobby Eckerman reading a poem from her 2015 collection, Inside My Mother. I'd like to read the poem um, dedicated to my mother. Her traditional name was Ningali. Um, it's a small poem. My mother is a granite boulder. I can no longer climb nor walk around. Her weight is a constant reminder of myself. I sit in her shadow. Gulls nestle in her eyes, their shadows her epitaph. I carry a pebble of her in my pocket. We come from a a, a very long storytelling world and so I wanted to capture all that in in anything that I I, I did. Alexis Wright is an award-winning Australian writer and is a member of the One New Nation in the Gulf of Carpentaria. Her novel Carpentaria won the 2007 Miles Franklin Literary Award and her non-fiction work Tracker won the 2018 Stella Prize. She broke new ground with the recognition of her work by the mainstream literary establishment and in doing so moved First Nations writing from the periphery to the centre. I really admire how she's used her position to advocate for First Nations literature and writing, but also for First Nations rights and the environment. Her work to me continues to shape our unique First Nations voice. She's made it her mission to tell stories with an Indigenous sensibility, which she says is absent from the traditional novel form. I couldn't find it uh, at the time when I, when I was trying to understand how I, I might write. 
um, in a whirl, you know, a huge whirl here that we have and a whirl of all times, you know, the oldest living culture in the world, stories that are ancient, um, beliefs, uh, laws that are so ancient that are still existing here today. And um, and, the, and the big stories of colonisation and the, the, you know, that's still huge issues for us and um, issues of sovereignty. Um, and uh, and I, I had to look at writers, you know, who, who um, had that long unbroken uh, attachment to the to their own country and that's how I um, developed um, the this, this style of writing that I, w- I wanted to do here. I learned from people like Carlos uh, Fientes, uh, uh, the Mexican writer, you know, and when he said, um, you know, all times in Mexico are, are important and no time has ever been resolved. And uh, and I thought that is exactly what's ha- you know, what what's the, the situation is here. And I wanted to try and find a way to do that. And so it's been a, a journey of uh, writing that in that way or, you know, bringing in all times and all times are important, no times resolved. Um, and uh, so it's a long journey and, um, uh, and, and I enjoy being on it. Alexis Wright challenges publishers to be more adventurous with the books and writers they foster. I think the the publishing world um, is um, a bit stuck. You know, it's it's um, it needs to become more exciting and uh, get, get with the story, <laughs> get get with what's <laughs> happening in the world, and uh, uh, and be more ambitious and be more visionary and and. Uh, Support writers to 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 go on that 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 those those journeys, you know, into into new ways of, of writing and and uh, exploring, expressing what's happening, and, uh, and 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 bring the readership with them. And uh, and I and I'll challenge all publishers to you know get with the story and um, build it and build it big and build it mighty. Build it big and build it mighty. I can really get behind that. Alexis Wright's latest novel is praiseworthy and she spoke about it recently on The Book Show, which you can find on the ABC Listen app. Now I'm joined by Mananjali Yugambeh author Ellen Van Nieven, who for me is one of the most exciting and interesting of the next generation of Indigenous writers. Welcome, Ellen. Thanks, Larissa. Lovely to be here. When I read your debut novel, Heat and Light, in 2014, when it first came out, I was really struck by the writing and the scope of the book. Um, It was to me, the arrival of a powerful new voice, but also I loved the ambition of the book as well. It was quite a revelation to me. So I'm pleased to say that Heat and Light has just been reissued as part of the First Nations Classic Series by UQP. And it's such a privilege to be able to chat with you about what it means to be a part of our culture's long storytelling tradition and how you've been shaping new approaches to Indigenous writing. But... Um, I just wanted to, before we get into those things, ask you, Ellen, as a First Nations writer, as a First Nations person, what does the NAIDOC theme of For Our Elders mean to you? Thanks, Larissa. 
Uh, I want to acknowledge that I'm on beautiful, sunny Yagara country at the moment um, in Brisbane South, and um, I live and work on Yagara and Turrbal land. Um, for this this year's NADOC theme, it's really it's a really important theme, and and for me, I apply it to my life. Um, there's been many elders that have shaped the way that I think and the way that I work in the world. Um, but also in the literary space has been so so many mob that have helped me, particularly because I came first as a published writer when I was a very young person. Um, so these are people that kind of tapped me on the shoulder and told me about, you know, what it means to be to be mob and what, what it means to kind of walk in the footsteps of so many people that have paved the way for us. Um, so... I wanted to list some of the elders that mentored me and supported me along the way to becoming a published writer. And for First Nations people, I advise that some of these people have passed away. Um, so this, this is like a roll call of people that have helped me and inspired me to continue to put my best foot forward. So the late Arnie Kerrywood Gilbert, the late Arnie Linda McBride-Uke, Uncle Jim Everett, Arnie Patsy Cameron, Arnie Barb Nicholson, Arnie Nancy Bamiger, Uncle Tony Birch, Arnie Alexis Wright, and so many others. Um, for me, you know, elders have have taught me to take some things very seriously, as we must, but also there's other things that we shouldn't take too seriously. So, you know, because life is also about enjoying ourselves and, and making the most of, of what we have. I mentioned that you're one of a new generation of First Nations writers. I think all of us as storytellers in our own traditions are aware of the long history um, that we carry with us. Um, we're very, through our sort of cultural values, attuned to um, the, our ancestors who, whose footsteps we follow in. And I was just wondering from your perspective, do you feel the weight of tradition and expectation when you write? And if so, how do you, how do you manage that? Um, when I think about the tradition of storytelling, you know, I come from a long line of Malanjali people that are really amazing storytellers. And that storytelling comes out in, in different ways. You know, lots of my family members, they can really tell a really good story that can get a whole room um, captivated. Um, for me, I think my, you know, way that I tell stories best is through writing. And I'm so glad I, you know, found that, found that out. Um, and so for me, um, to have, you know, really talented filmmakers and, and dancers in the family, they could sort of capture that side of things in a way that sort of makes me feel like I can do my own, my, my own thing through my writing and, and not sort of have to re represent everything and, and everyone. Um, but it is, of course, an, an extreme um, privilege and extreme responsibility to, you know, to to be um, to be a published writer um, and to to write books um, that people are going to to read and that that's going to be part of this, you know, ongoing landscape of First Nations stories um, that is essentially truth telling that's essentially um writing about history that's both very old and very very new um and writing these stories to sort of express that we're still here um we never left we're we're still continuing um our, our ancestors stories and you know there's a lot 
there's a lot of stories. There's such a diversity of stories um, there that we can tell um, and we can be part of. And uh, we're, we're passing that on to a new generation as well to sort of add to that ongoing story. As I mentioned, your 2014 debut novel, Heat and Light, has just been republished as part of the UQP First Nations Classic series, along with work by Tony Birch, Doris Pilkington, Ruby Langford Guinaby, and um, they've all been reissued. And for full disclosure, I wrote the introduction to Tony Birch's novel, Blood, as part of that series. But what does it mean to you to see your work republished as a classic? Yeah, it's a really... It's a really overwhelming privilege, I think. Um, so Heat and Light, yeah, it's 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 about ten years old now, um, and some of the works that are also in the First Nations classics. These are works that I've long admired, and I've I'm so glad to sort of see this series come to be. And it's not it's not often that you get to sort of have a sort of launch a book twice, um, and so Heat and Light coming out with a new introduction by the wonderful Alison Whitaker, um, just makes me smile the biggest smile because Alison is being able to kind of contextualise the work, what it meant to her, what it might have meant to queer mob reading this story for the first time. Um, to have that introduction, to have this sort of really new cover and kind of to be represented, um, the covers by Jenna Lee, who's a Larrakia woman, and they look fantastic. Um, and to have a new sense of what it means to, you know, to, to, to be able to write, um, you know, because I think when my first book came out, it was so overwhelming, you know, there's so many things you don't know um, about being a writer. Um, and now to just be able to really celebrate it um, and feel like it's in really good hands um, and it's been really beautifully and thoughtfully considered is really great. And when we think about classics, um, I love how this series is called First Nations Classics because we often think of like classics as, you know, from a Eurocentric perspective. Um, but to think about what a First Nations classic is, is really exciting because we're thinking not only, you know, books that might have these characters that we love or tell these stories that are really compelling and important, um, but we're also thinking, well, what what elements of this work resonate with a First Nations readership? Um, which is a really good question to sort of ask um, in this environment because for so long publishing has been so, you know, it's it's fulfilled the needs of, of its um, largely white readership without, you know, thinking about First Nations readers, without thinking of readers from non-white background. Um, and so how, how can we sort of think about, well, what's important for us, um, what books are important, what books have had that staying power and that have stayed on our shelves and, and made us feel like really seen and, and really vibrant and really blessed. Um, so, yeah, it's just such an honour to be part of this series. I thought Alison was a wonderful choice to do the introduction, also a strong voice of, of your generation and um, such a an, an intellect. Um, she did a great job of contextualising the work. Um, Heat and Light is really hard 
to categorise into a, a, a genre, which is one of the things I really liked about it. It sort of said First Nations writing can't be categorised in the ways you think of categorising writing. Um, I love that about it. So how do you describe it when you're telling people about what the content of the book is? Yeah, I think because the book's been out for a while now, I've kind of, I have thought about how to, to sort of talk about it in brief terms, but it is, of course, a work that is, you know, really kind of exploding, you know, genre categories because it can be read as as both a novel or, um, you know, interlinking short stories um, or, you know, perhaps it just refuses to have a, has, have a category of, of its own. So it's, it is a work in three sections. So the first section represents the past. Um, it explores this intergenerational story about a young Aboriginal woman trying to find out more about the legacy of her grandmother, Pearl. Um, and then there's a second section, which is represents a future. So it depicts a futuristic um, Brisbane and surrounding areas. It's a satire, it's Indigenous futurism, it's it's a little wild and, and funny. Um, it's But, the you know, the main sort of underlying theme is about what happens when we overdevelop and disrespect country and we disturb the spirits of the place. And then the third section represents the present and these are stories that largely reflect being queer, young and black in southeast Queensland in the 2010s, um, which is when it was set and when I wrote it. And, uh, you know, these these stories are a little bit of a time capsule as well as what I was sort of thinking and, and uh, you know, dreaming about. Um, and altogether, this, this book has, you know, many stories, um, but essentially uh, a work that really represents um, myself and what I was thinking about at the time. It's not necessarily an autobiographical work, but I think uh, it was largely written to really just kind of represent you know, us as queer blackfellas um, and that younger generation as well um, and sort of put that voice out there. You know, I really, really was writing in my, you know, how I sort of talk um, and thinking that that was the best way to sort of come across and express myself rather than trying to be someone else. The other thing about it that um, you've touched on is, you know, it it did write into areas that we hadn't seen First Nations writing in before. Um, you talked about the, the writing around the First Nations queer voice, but also the experimentation with, um, I guess, the sort of speculative fiction. And it mm-hmm. feels like that's been an area that since this the publication of your book has really blossomed. Um, I see how um, a book like yours can open the horizons for other writers who can then feel very confident about going into that space. But from your perspective, when you look around at the writing that's here now, especially amongst your peers, what do you observe in terms of what's happened to First Nations writing since your book first came out? So I've I've just been thinking about, you know, when I first started writing Heat and Light and what what were my influences? And I was really looking at um, the David Unipon Award, which is the award, also the award that Heat and Light received in manuscript form. Um, and it's an award that's been going on for several decades now and continues um, for a, an emerging unpublished um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander writer. 
And so yourself, Larissa, was a big influence on me when I was writing your work home. Um, Aww. Yeah. <laughs> I just wanted to sort of, I know this is, you know, maybe like switching the chairs a little bit, but I was inspired both by Home, which is an incredible novel, um, but also your comments at the time about why you write fiction um, as opposed to writing nonfiction, what fiction can do. That was really influential on me thinking about writing Heat and Light. So maybe if, if you don't mind talking a, li- a little bit about that. <laughs> well, I guess um, I, can't. <laughs> I feel a bit overwhelmed now. Um, you know, I... I felt like I needed to write into a space that wasn't being mentioned before. And I guess because I was a lawyer, I always came from that perspective of understanding how our storytelling was a really big part of us reclaiming a narrative that that non-Indigenous people had taken from us and created around us, but also could see the importance of writing back into um, our storytelling, the voices that had been silenced as well, like those of my grandmother um, and my father's generation. Um, I didn't ever think I'd be able to um, be inspiring about it. It's very humbling to hear you say that when I'm such a fan of your work. And it's an interesting thing because, you know, I always talk about how Anita Heiss's writing opened up uh, the doors for me because she broke down genres. And then I read a book uh, like yours. And for me, Heat and Light even went further. And as a writer made me much more ambitious. So I love the circularity of the <laughs> fact that we can still be in a relationship where our storytelling uh, helps with the revival of First Nations storytelling. And I so didn't think this was where our conversation <laughs> was going to go, but I wondered if you had any reflections on that circularity. Yeah, that is it's really is quite beautiful. Um, yeah, so you know your your influence on my work, and then you know thinking about um, the new generation or the you know ne- not necessarily generations because um, I guess you know writers can be new writers at any age. Um, so maybe the new books that are might be coming out in this decade. I think there's there's a vastness and there's a sense of possibility, um, and it's all thanks to um, you know, the writers that, that paved the way in that space and, of course, Anita as well and um, and thinking that writer, you know, a First Nations writer, they can think that, you know, I can write in any genre now, you know, that the, the possibilities are endless. And we're also seeing a more of an appreciation for those books now and more opportunities for authors to, to publish um, in that space. Um it's really quite beautiful. It's really quite thrilling and, and compelling. And um, it means so much to me to be able to, you know, be in this space and be amongst great writers. Um, Ellen, it's been so great to talk to you, as it always is. It's been lovely. Thanks so much, Larissa. That's poet Ellen Van Nieven. She was speaking with me on a special NADOC edition of the book show produced by Sarah Lestrange. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Ellen Van Nieven's book Heat and Light is part of the UQP First Nations Classic series and it comes with a new introduction from Gomeroy poet Alison Whitaker. You also heard from some of my other inspirations, Tony Birch, Ali Cobby Eckerman and Alexis Wright. <laughs> Thank you.
That's the show for this week. Join us again next week when we feature other highlights from ABC's NAIDOC Week. Speaking Out is produced by Jay McAllister and Manel Creed and you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au and find us on social media via ABC Indigenous. I'm Larissa Berendt.